We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He was named to the NBA Top 50 All-Time on the league's 50th anniversary, and he was named to the NBA's Top 75 All-Time on the league's 75th anniversary. He was an All-Star for the first 12 of his 14 seasons, and he's the only man to win scoring titles in the NCAA, the ABA, and the NBA. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Rick Barry. Rick, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Good. I'm, I'm glad. I, I look forward to uh, to speaking with you. Um, obviously, as as the intro would suggest, there's a lot to get to. Um, but I do. I always love to kind of get a little bit of you know a player's of of a you know an athlete's background. You're born in Elizabeth, New Jersey. You're from you. You grew up in Roselle Park and go to Roselle Park High School, where, among other things, you're a two-time All-State basketball player. Um, tell me a little bit about you know kind of growing up in New Jersey, your Roselle Park years, and and what else you did besides play basketball. Well, I was also a two-time All-State baseball player. I was actually a better baseball player in high school, and uh, I, the baseball is just too slow for me. Sure. I, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm an A-type personality, man. In baseball. <laughs> I, 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 you could play a whole game. I was playing center field because Willie Waves was my hero. I wore 24. And I finally said, you know what? I got to pitch because at least I'm active there. And then I moved to first base because I could have some action. You could play a whole game in center field and never have a ball hit to you. Right. you know? And then you get down and for two innings, you could sit in the dugout for two full innings and never get at bat. And then you go back out in the field and stand around out there. Whereas in basketball, I'm doing something all the time. So I, uh, I, I focused on my, my basketball thanks to a junior varsity coach who made it easy for me to do it because I was playing JV baseball and I was pitching and I wanted to, you know, obviously I played every position. I earned, at an early age, I learned they didn't want to catch. Okay. And so I go to the coach, I said, coach, I said, look, I, I said, I want to play when I'm not pitching this. I'm batting better than anybody on the team. I'm batting 500. I said, so when I'm not pitching, I want to play. So the next game I play, I pitch, I go one for two again. And the next game, I'm on the bench. I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. So I just said, I'm going to screw baseball. I'm going to go focus on basketball. So I devoted myself to basketball. And then the varsity coach in my junior year came to me and said, I hope you're going to come out for the team. I said, well, 
maybe. I said, depends. I said, I, I don't know why the coach wouldn't let me pitch when I didn't, you know, play when I didn't pitch. And I said, I batted better than everybody on the team. He said, oh, no, you're, you'll play. You'll play when you don't pitch. I said, okay. So I went out for the team, made all state two years. So, but I, but my love for it and all and passion, you know, left me. The only thing good about it is if you're really good at baseball, you could play a lot longer than you can basketball. Although now with the technology that they have and the training that's going on, you know, guys are playing to their, you know, up in their late thirties, even to 40 years of age, even in, in, in uh, basketball. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, that was my story for, for what happened. I, they, I ran track and field only because no, no cross country, only because the basketball team made me do it. I hate, I hate running, just running on its own. And so I did that just to get in shape. Um, I did, you know, when I got to college, I did intramural swimming and I, I was pretty good at that too. Um, but I didn't have any great desire to you know, play football because I, I learned at an early age that if one of the objects of the game is to hit the opponent, I didn't think I wanted to play that game. And they tried to get me to go out for football because I would go out. George Myra was our quarterback when I was there. And I'd go out and run past patterns for, you know, with George. And I'm, I'm, I had good hands. I'm, I'm catching everything. I was quick and fast. And they're going, oh, you got to come out for the team. And I said, I don't think so. And, and the, the basketball coach comes up to me, you know, who turned out to wind up being my father-in-law, Bruce Hale. He said, what the heck is this? What the hell is this? You're going out for football. I said, what are you talking about, coach? I said, if they change it to two-hand touch, I'll go play some football. But otherwise, <laughs> I'm not playing. So that was my story. And then I wish I had played baseball in, in college. Uh, the, they tried to get me to come out. Ron Frazier was the coach there. And I, I just, you know, I just didn't want to do it. That that love and passion that I had for basketball was just so much greater than baseball. But it would, looking back on it, it would have been fun. I would love to have been a really good two-star athlete performer, kind of like some guys did during their careers. That would have been interesting for me. Yeah. And, and it's funny because Miami, you know, a couple, well, a couple decades later, Jimmy Graham was a basketball player at Miami who turned into a hell of a football player. Well, they had they had a great baseball team down there. Ron Frazier had some really good teams down there, so baseball was a good sport. But yeah, I could always hit. I had really good eye hand coordination. And in high school, I batted four something, four fifty or sixty my junior year, and then I got a little bigger and stronger. They had fences on the right and right center, and I would hit home runs there because I'd be a little late getting on the pitches because of my I wasn't big and strong. And then I started pulling the ball. I had no fences, and I only batted like three sixty my senior year. With and I only struck out, I think, like nine times the entire season. I, I really could hit the ball. Right? Did you? Did you? Was it going to be? You know, for for I guess specifically for basketball, was it going to be Miami all the way, or were you looking at a bunch of different schools? Well, I had thirty five scholarship offers, but my biggest thing is I didn't want to go anywhere where I had to have a winter, where I had to wear an overcoat and gloves and earmuffs and things like that. So Miami, Miami was about the warmest place, I guess, that I heard from. But uh, I didn't I only visited one school. That's because my father wanted to go down to visit a friend of his who's in Carolina. I visited Wake Forest. Actually, Billy Packer was there as a player at the time. And uh, that's the only place I even visited. And I don't think I had any desire of going way out west. But so I went to Miami because I felt that they played the style of basketball that I liked. Bruce Hale was the coach up, 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 up tempo game, pro style, man to man defense. And so for me, going to college, it was like being four years in the minor leagues training because right. we played we played pro basketball, pro style of game. And he was very helpful to me in getting me ready for the pros because he had been there. He was a top pro player himself. And so that was the big advantage of being there. I mean, hell, I, I don't think people understand that in my senior year, without a three-point shot, we averaged 99 points a game. Yeah. In college. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, well, you you averaged thirty seven. 
I, yeah, I got 37. And I'll tell you, to me to get 37, I had two guards. Actually, I, I had two guards, Rick Jones and Junior G from Indiana, that when they crossed half court, they thought they were in range. Also, Louis, Louis Dampier's cousin, John Dampier, who also could shoot from distance, and Wayne Beckner, another Indiana guy who could shoot from distance. If we had the three-point shot when I was in college, I'm telling you, we would have averaged 110 points a game. Yeah. Easy. Easy yeah. because the three point shot back then when it first came out, every one of those guys I just mentioned, it was like a nothing shot for them. Right. Yeah. And Louis Dampier, I, you know, I remember uh, as a kid, you know, he was the three point shooter in the ABA, you know, for the Kentucky Colonels. So uh, obviously well, some bloodlines there. Well, his his cousin, John, was a jump shooter. OK. From distance. I mean, maybe one of the best long distance jump shooters I, I, I've seen and in, in for a long, long time before I saw anybody better. And so, you know, guys like Clay Thompson, Steph Curry have come along. Uh, but man, yeah, it, I, we had we had a very explosive offensive team in college. Yeah. And and this is obviously back when freshmen couldn't play. So your freshman right. year, you're, yeah. you're 14 and 12, but you can't play the next couple of years. You guys are always single digit losses. You know, that's it. Um, you're either honorable mention or all American every year. And what's, what's amazing to me is your scoring goes 1932, 37, your rebounds go 14, 17, 18. Um, so, I mean, you were putting up big statistics every step of the way. Well, aren't uh, you supposed to get better every year? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> and I, uh, when I look, when I looked at players and I looked at things for, you know, different teams are doing it. It's one of the things I always look at is somebody getting better. You know, you don't want somebody that don't, he averaged 15 points once and then he averages 12 and then he gets 18 or somebody gets 20 a game, then he's down to 17, but his shooting percentage goes down. I mean, you're supposed to get better. And so, well, so then coming out, so you're an All-American, you're the leading scorer in the nation. You're coming out. You're ultimately the second overall pick to the San Francisco Warriors. Um, and that's a team you're going into. Al Adels is is one of the point guards on the team. Nate Thurmond is there. Um the prior year they had been 17 and 63. So this is a team that's struggling. There's a reason why they've got the top picks in the draft. Um, your first year, they improve. They almost double their, their uh, win total. They go to 35 wins. Alex Hanneman is the coach and he's an interesting guy. He's a guy who he might be the only man I know of in pro sports uh, outside of Scotty Bowman, who's won titles with three different teams at the pro level. Um, he, at that point, he had already won with the Hawks. What was it like coming in and playing for a guy like Alex Hannum? Alex was very interesting. I can still remember. He was really an interesting guy, tough guy. I mean, I heard when he coached Wilt and everything, he was willing to challenge Wilt to a fight. That's got to be kind of crazy. But uh, I remember this. This is crazy that some things stick in your head. Like, I can say a Latin prayer because I was an altar boy, a Shishipia. I still know the Shishipia in Latin, which is really insane. And, you know, and I could say, Chishipio Domino Sacrifice, and the amount of us to us allowed him to go to him, nobody's silly, all these be taught, ten copque, no shim, to see a squake, lacy, sui sante. How in the hell I remember that? I don't know. Okay. Wow. Same thing. So I'll give you one for Alex. Hum diddy diddy, you got it. We need him. How about him? A loaf of bread and pound of eating all the mushroom you can eat. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that Alex came out with his mouth with. And it, it is, it's so weird in life, the stuff that sticks in your brain. There's two bizarre things that stick in my mind. But he was, he was tough. He was, uh, I, I, the best thing I remember about Alex, a great story about Alex, when I, I'm playing, Tom Sherry is guarding me, right? So we're in training camp. Sure. And I'm just, I am eating, I'm eating Tom's lunch. I mean, I was so much quicker than Tom. Great guy. Tom's a great guy. Very intellectual guy. You know, he became a poet and what have you. And 
they retired his jersey because Franklin Muley loves love Tom. So I'm killing them. Okay, so I'm at the free throw line, and Alex shows up. And so, uh, so Mo, you you guard you guard Barry, and Al- and I remember from Sherry says, "God damn it, Alex! Alex, I got him! Don't don't you switch off everything? I got him!" And so, <laughs> and I said over to guys, "says It's okay, Coach. Let him stay with me." And so I just continue to kick his butt. And so one time when the season had started, they gone. Those guys used to try to get away. I didn't drink or something. And I found them hanging out to get some drinks and go for a beer they were drinking. And he and he talked to us. You know, something, Brooke, you know when you got my respect? I said, no, when? He said, remember in training camp when you were kicking my ass? <laughs> he said, and Alex told me to not guard you anymore. And I said, I wanted to guard you. And you said, let, let me guard you. He says, that's when you earn my respect. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's crazy the stuff that happens in sports. Oh, that's that's so funny. And you're you're the rookie of the year, and you, you're scoring 26 points a game as a rookie. Um, and like I mentioned, you know, Adels and Nate Thurman around that team. Now, Nate Thurman's a young guy too at that point. He had been at Bowling Green around the same time you were at Miami. Um, what was it like coming in and playing with a guy like him? Well, just awesome. I mean, he was interesting enough. Unless an All Star game after my senior season, I had never played on a team with a black player. Mm. And so, you know, and I got to play with two of the greatest people. Now, forget the colors. I mean, Al Adels and, and Nate Thurman are as fine of individuals you could ever want to have as human beings. And so, and to play with one of the best defensive centers in the history of the game, I mean, it was fantastic to have him. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about it, and he knew it too, is that he wouldn't dunk when I get him on pick and roll plays. He just didn't think, he didn't like dunking. He's, you know, he didn't want to feel like a big, some big goon out there dunking the ball, you know, because I'm tall. And and so I would hope he'd get mad because if he got mad and then something happened in the game, I know he'd dunk it then. But he was he was awesome. Nate was just absolutely awesome. Um, terrific all-around player, obviously, you know, a Hall of Famer. And uh, it was really neat. I had, uh, he was the one that, uh, stood up for me and you know, presented me when I went into the hall of fame, which I appreciated. And unfortunately he's no longer with us, but it was great play with him. And Al, man, you knew you had somebody had your back. He was named the destroyer. And uh, if Al had gotten into price fighting, he probably would have been a world champion price fight. He had such a quick hand. I always remember one time hitting Zelmo when he got into a fight. He hit Zelmo twice before Zelmo even knew what happened. Uh, but Al was a, a tough, tough guy. Uh, everybody in the league, I think, respected and feared him without question so it was nice to know you had a guy like that uh you know protecting your back but yeah, yeah great guys we had great guys gary phillips is on the team paul newman was on the team i you know guy rogers one of the great point guards he was really the starting point guard when i went there was guy rogers and i knew that guy loved to get assists and so that's why they they bill king nick they made me the miami greyhound because i was fast and quick and so i ran the floor knowing if i got open guy wanted to get an assist so i'm going to get an easy layup so i just ran like a like an antelope and the deer <laughs> and, and so i i remember i remember all that stuff very vividly it was uh great memories uh, great memories yeah you know it's funny it's interesting you remember phil villapiano the old oakland raider i know <laughs> I know all those Raider guys because I, I got to be good friends with Al Davis. In fact, Al wanted to buy the team because I was going to leave. He said, if I buy the team, will you stay? I said, yeah, I'll stay. And uh, it wasn't anything against Franklin Muley, but I mean, I really respected Al. And I know Al was always really good to his players and took really good care of his players. And uh, so, yeah, I knew all those guys. I knew Phil and Daryl LaMonica and Freddie Bolitnikoff, still the dear friend. And Kenny Stabler and I mean, you know, Jim Otto, I just go down the list of all these guys. I know Cliff Branch. I mean, great guys. I, I knew them quite well. Yeah, uh, that's, that's it's a great list of guys. I've, I've been fortunate enough to interview both Fred and Phil for the show. 
And it's funny, the, the reason I bring up Phil is he's a Jersey guy like you. He obviously played in the Bay Area like you. I asked him, how did you end up from the Jersey Shore? How'd you end up at Bowling Green? And he said, my dad used to take me to the NIT every year at the Garden. And I watched Nate Thurman play basketball. And I was like, you know, I saw the school spirit. I saw him. And I was like, that's where I want to go to college. That's how Villapiano ended up at, at uh, Bowling Green because of Nate Thurman. Yeah, well, I got to watch it. I watched Miami play there, too. And I loved the way that they played. And that was a big determining factor for me, um, you know, because of the style of play that they had. That, that That's I could I thrive, you know, in that because I was able to use the athleticism that I had. You know, somebody my size, there weren't a lot of guys that were six foot seven and well, six, eight with my shoes on. And uh, and and be able to run and be not only fast but quick. There's a big difference. Somebody could be fast but not quick, and you could be quick and not fast. I was both, and I think right. that was a well. And the thing I was proudest of, you said, you know, rookie of the year. I mean, that's nice. But I say, yeah, I was first team All Pro as a as a rookie. Yeah, yeah, something that would become a recurring theme for most of your career. Um, yeah, and then and then the second year, you guys make it to the finals. You lose in a uh, tough con- uh, tough six game. Uh, series with the 76 uh, well yeah with the 76ers Chamberlain has a great quote he says talking about you and I think you averaged uh 40.8 right yeah a little over 40 and I did it the thing about that sir is I said see I wish I would have known what I could have done I played well I wouldn't have been able to play they wouldn't have let me play if I was today because of the money involved uh I had to get my ankle shot numbed up before the game and at halftime to play. And I could never practice. I had a really bad sprained ankle I'd gotten against in the series before. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I managed to put up just stupid numbers without being able to practice and, and just never no, I wasn't anywhere near a hundred percent. So mm-hmm. I was kind of proud of that. And and the only person to have beaten that record in the in NBA finals was Michael Jordan by barely beating it. But the only reason he beat it is because he played in an overtime game and scored eight points in the overtime. There you go. Yeah, because yeah, because you're forty point eight and he's forty one, um, and it, yeah, it was like almost thirty years later that he did it. But yeah, Chamberlain said that guy talking about you. That guy was so good. We had to have three different guys guard him because all of them were being run ragged by him. So uh, you obviously made an impression on the on the Big Dipper. I got to know Wilt afterwards, and I, I had made a comment about him that I regretted doing and saying that Wilt was a loser. That was just horrible for me to say that. Uh, I mean, it, when he had the personnel and had the teammates, they, you know, they're picked as one of the that was picked as one of the greatest teams of all time in NBA history. When he played on the Lakers, even late in his career, you know, they set records with the consecutive wins that they had during the season and won a championship. I mean, Will was pretty amazing and a really great guy. I mean, I really enjoyed getting to know him, and I'm so sorry that he's no longer with us. And I know I talked to the sister Barbara; she was so mad at him. She said, "Rick." If he had just gone in for his physicals and everything, he could still be alive today. I mean, and then I had to see that happen with my mother, who didn't go in for her checkups all the time and wound up getting strokes and dying, who probably could have lived a lot longer had she just gone to the doctor. So if you're older and you're listening, go in and get your checkups every year, folks. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lesson there for sure. Um, and well, and speaking of that Lakers team that won that he won with in the early 70s, your second year. Uh, that year when you guys go to the finals, Bill Sharman is your coach who would, would ultimately be that Lakers coach. What was it pl- like playing for Sharman, you know, former Celtic champion and future Lakers coach? Uh, it was difficult. Okay. Uh, I liked Bill as a person, uh, as a coach, he was, he was just fanatical about stuff and we had to do all the stuff that he did. Uh, he's the one that started the morning shoot around stuff, which I think is just the biggest waste of time in the world. Cause the only reason he did it back then was to get you out of bed. Right. So if you if you were lucky enough 
to have a situation where you weren't, you know, and, and you're traveling and you get in early in the morning, then you get up and you go have a shoot around practice. I mean, my God, it was terrible. I said, coach, just let me sleep a little bit. I mean, it, I, I don't, to me, if I was coaching, doing this thing, I would never have shoot arounds before games. Uh, I just get my team up out of bed at the hotel, have a meeting in the room, walk through what you want to do, just get them up a little bit. And if guys want to do it, they can get to the arena early enough and go out and shoot around before the game. If they chose to do that to me, Doing the shoot around in the morning is the biggest waste of energy. I know I'm going to expend a tremendous amount of energy that night in the game. I'm going to play. I was, you know, I played over 40 minutes a game most of the time. In fact, right. I think one season in the ABA might have averaged 47. You know, not as crazy as Will to one season average 50 50 minutes a game in a 48 minute game because he played all the overtimes and never fouled out. Yeah. So, uh, to me, the shoot arounds and he had us do that, and it was just he hardly gave us days off. Uh, it was tough. I mean, he was mad at me because I didn't practice when I was getting my ankle shot up during the series finals. I mean, I said, Bill, I said, I think you should be thrilled that I'm willing to get my ankle shot to play. I said, I'm not getting shot up to go practice. Right. I mean, so anyway, he was difficult in that regard. Good person. I really liked him as a person. I mean, but what a, uh, he was committed. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, so dedicated to do stuff. But he wanted you to do it the way that he approached it. And, you know, that what's good for one person isn't necessarily good for everybody else. And, right. uh, yeah, so I, I wasn't a big fan of all of that stuff. And But he was obviously an outstanding, you know, outstanding coach, a great player. Uh, but it wasn't fun. You know, and that's the big thing for me is having fun. And it's the same thing when I finished up with the Rockets. I didn't have fun. I mean, I said, wait a second, this game has always been fun for me. I don't want to feel like it's a job. And I right. said, well, it is your job. I said, yeah, but it's never been felt like a job because I love to play. And, you know, I, I think the big thing is, as a coach, you want to make, keep it fun. I mean, these guys are playing, even though it is a profession, it should be fun. You know, right. that's why kids, when I say find something you love and have a passion for, and then maybe you'll be lucky like me and you'll get to do what you love to do and somebody will pay you for it. That's not working for a living. Right. Except, yeah. of course, unfortunately, Rich, they just forgot three zeros on my contracts. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually that, that brings up the next thing. So you guys go to the finals. You're, you're now a two-time all-star. Uh, you guys go to game six in the finals. And then the next year you move over to the Oakland Oaks of the ABA, which is just starting up. What, what kind of spurred that transition or that well, move? Or you say when I played, I also was MVP of the all-star game. I mean, that was the thing that was crazy. That team had so many top, 50 players on it. I have a photograph in it. There's five, there's, I think there might be six players or seven players in the photograph. Every one of them was a top 50 player. That 67 All-Star game was a hell of a game. And it's the only All-Star game where the coach got thrown out. Red Harbaugh got thrown out of the game. It was in the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And I remember I had 38 points. And I also remember somebody broke in my car and stole my uniform. And uh, after the game, when I stopped off to do something, so I was not happy about that. And then years later, somebody sent me back to shorts and said, I just thought you might like to have these, but I'm not giving you the jersey. <laughs> so, But I, I left for the reason I just spoke about. Here I was, led the league in scoring, MVP of the All-Star game, first-team All-Pro player, came within two pick-and-roll plays of winning the championship, and it wasn't a great amount of fun for me. I didn't really enjoy it that much. And I had a chance to perhaps go and play for my father-in-law, who was my college coach. He's my father-in-law, who I love playing for. And then it turns out that they wind up getting Alex Hannum, who I enjoy playing for in my rookie year. And 
it wasn't like people said it wasn't about the money. I never played one side against the other. If I had to do it over again, I would have. Everybody else did it. And everybody said, oh, man, what a great opportunity. Hell, I never did that. I should have gone back and forth. They said, okay, Pat, Boone, and uh, what are you guys offering me? Okay, go back. Well, here's what they're offering me, Franklin. What are you willing to pay? I should have done that. I mean, hell, that's life. I right. didn't. I went and I said, I'm going over. I'm going to find out what they say. I said, you guys, give me your best offer because I'm going back to the Warriors. And if the Warriors come close to matching what you're telling me, I'm going to stay with the Warriors. I think I owe them that. And that's exactly what I did. And I went back to the Warriors and the Warriors, I told them, I said, give me your best offer. And they didn't. So they they gave me the opportunity to do in my heart what I thought I would want to do because I wasn't it wasn't that much fun playing that year. And um and they, they, they didn't. And then they came back and gave me another offer, which is what they told the newspapers about, and which basically would have matched what the Oaks are offering me, except for the fact that I could have had ownership in the Oaks. All right, I did get some ownership. And uh, and so that's why I made the move. It had nothing to do with uh, with the money. Sure. And and yet, and it's an interesting season. So you're you're basically staying in the Bay Area. You're playing for the Oakland Oaks. But they make you sit out. They, they basically, the Warriors, exercise the reserve clause. I challenged the reserve clause. I was Kurt Flood before Kurt Flood. Okay. Yeah. The reserve clause is a contract in perpetuity. You sign the first year, you're obligated to play the second year if you don't agree to what they offer you at 90% of what you paid for the played for the, the year before. And so uh, I I said, okay, fine. And the, and the NBA got mad at, at them for that because they, they, they screwed up the reserve clause is what they did. I mean, that's, that's what kind of opened the door. Then Kurt Flood wound up doing it in baseball. He's the one they talk about all the time, but it happened in basketball for me. And so I chose to sit out. I could have gone and played for the Warriors and say, okay, I'm going to play on my option and I'm going to play. But I said, I, I don't think that's going to be a great idea. I don't think I should do that. Uh, it'd be very difficult. Um, and I decided not to do it. So I basically decided to play out my option so I didn't play that year. I played for the KYA Radio Wonders and my good friend Johnny Holiday, who was Godfather to one of my oldest sons, Scooter. And I played for them and I would pass to Johnny, who would shoot about 30, 35 times a game and play against high school faculties to be able to make some money for them. So that's what that's what I did that. And I played I played in uh, I played in many, many, many golf pro-ams on, on the pro tour flying around i went over to hawaii to play and so i was kind of traveling around playing golf and playing for the kya radio wonders for that season so that was if i look back at it, I said, what an idiot i gave it one of the prime years of my freaking career but you know it is what it is um, but if i had to do it over again if i had to do it over again and i knew that i could be where i am today have the amazing wife i have have the incredible son that she gave me canyon who just won the gold medal in the pan am games on 3x3 for the usa and I, I, I would, I would stay, I would stay, but I wouldn't stay if I couldn't be where I am today, having my wife and my son and the friends and all that I have right now, but everything in life happens for a reason. And I like to joke about it. I said, but yeah, I couldn't have done that. And it probably could have never worked out that way because I would have screwed up the space time continuum because I like Star Trek. <laughs> I hear you. So, so, so then, the, so the next year you play for the Oaks. And Alex Hannum is the coach again. And you are the scoring champ. You score 34 points a game. You do get hurt about midway through the season. You try to come back. Um, and that team coached by Hannum goes on to win the title. So you get a ring. Uh, I guess that's the second year of the ABA. How did that team feel to you? I mean, you guys were dominant. You were 60 and 18 that year. We had a really good team. I mean, uh, had, you know, Doug Moe, Larry Brown, outstanding players. Ira Harge is the center 
Um, you know, we got Rusty Critchfield who played at Cal. We had a lot of nice players. Hey, I'll tell you, we have a guy that he got hurt. Oh my God, if he had gotten hurt, he would have been such a player. I had never seen anybody handle the ball and do the things. That's Henry Logan. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Henry just passed away. But man, oh man, you want to talk about a gifted guy. I brought him to a clinic one time and I said, well, you can do some dribbling. I said, okay. He said, I said, okay, well, Henry's going to dribble for you and show you because he could go through the legs behind the back, do all that stuff, which, you know, I had never seen people do that before. And so he said, well, how about blindfolding me? So we got all the kids and stuff, so I blindfolded him. So he starts running up the court forwards and backwards with the blindfold on, dribbling through his legs behind his back and everything. He was amazing. And he was athletic as could be. He would have been – he had a chance to be an all-star caliber player. He was that good. And unfortunately, he got hurt, which was so sad. And then the other guy that we had on the team was actually – well, Warren Armstrong, it became Warren Jabali, who was a heck of a player, a tough, really tough, uh, physical, really outstanding player as well. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of really good, uh, really good players on our team. And we were we were pretty darn dominant. I mean, and they wound up winning it without me. They didn't even win the championship. So that's how good we were. Yeah. And and then but then the team and you you referenced it earlier. Pat Boone was the owner of the team. Um, the problem was he was one of the owners. He got rope. He didn't want to be involved as much financially as he was, but but he did get involved and a really good guy. I really liked Pat a lot. Okay. Yeah. And but ultimately the team's not drawing well. It's tough because you've got the Warriors across the bay. So ultimately the team moves to Washington. Um, and you go out there and you're in a very weird spot where you guys have to con- compete in the Western Conference. Even yeah, though well, 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 first of all, let's go that. I didn't want to go and I shouldn't have had to go. And my attorneys had told me I did not put it in my contract and I should have had it written down. But I, the agreement was that I will play for the Oaks as long as they're here in Oakland. I'm not leaving. I didn't want to leave the Bay Area. Sure. And unfortunately, they reneged on that. I didn't have anything. It was an oral agreement. I didn't have it in writing. And Earl Foreman, who was the owner of the team, you know, so I said, well, I'm not sitting out another year. So I had to go back reluctantly. And I went back and played there and then got hurt again, you know, injured my knee again playing there, playing in Uline Arena, which was just a terrible place, not in the best area of town. I actually had to pay a guy to watch my car. So hopefully it would be there after the game. Right. Yeah, I actually Googled the arena because I, I had never heard of it before. So I Googled it and found it. It's like right on the train tracks. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty bad area and pretty ugly arena. And so, yeah. And then I, yeah. you know. I got I hurt my knee again and that that sucked and and then I you know came back to play and I'd have to get my knee drained before the game but at halftime and uh, yeah it was it was not a lot of fun and made it made it very difficult to to play under those circumstances but the beauty of it is is fortunately I had the resolve and I had the the pride that I was always going to pride if I put my uniform on you're going to get the best that I had regardless of the circumstances sure yeah, absolutely. And speaking of not wanting to go to Washington, you had a great quote. You said something like, if, if I want to go to Washington, I'm going to run for president. Yeah, I, I don't even know if I said that at all, but it sounds like something <laughs> I said back in those days. <laughs> I did not want to go back there. I, you know, I, I, I drove across the country, you know, to get back there. And uh, it was it was very interesting. But you did bring up something before I jumped in with something when you were bringing it up and it was true. We played in Washington, DC and we played a schedule meant for being in the West coast. So we would play the first second game of a double header back in those days, they had double headers and we would play. So it was scheduled to be a double header in Oakland. And then we were playing against the Anaheim team down in, in, in Southern California the next night. The only problem was the game was in Washington, DC. 
And so we played there and jump on a night flight and everything to fly out to go play the next day in Anaheim, California. Oh. So it was crazy. Yeah. That, and then that. sometimes we actually stayed on the road, I think, for over a month one time because it was cheaper for us to stay out and go and you know play some games, had to go to Denver and play there or whatever, to stay on the road, get the per diem than it would have been for them to fly us back to Washington and then back out to Denver or wherever we were going. So we had incredibly extended road trips sometimes because of that the of the of the scheduling. Yeah, that's crazy. And then and then the team decides they're gonna move down to Virginia and become the Virginia Squires. And you're ultimately traded to the New York Nets where right. you go like the Luke Carnesecca for a couple of years, who had already been at St. John's for a handful of years and obviously would return there for two decades. But tell me about, you know, kind of you move to the Nets and, and playing for Luke Carnesecca. Well, that was probably one of the best things that happened. I love Luke Carnesecca. I mean, he, I, I'm still in touch with him today. God bless him. He's, you know, he's getting close to a hundred years old. I mean, and just a, a great guy. And, um, He's the first coach that I had that didn't didn't really think he had all the answers to things. He's coming from college to the pros. He actually would sit down with a Billy Melchioni and myself, guys who had some NBA experience or what have you, and he would ask our opinions about things. It wasn't like he thought he had all the answers and you know do it this way that way. He really wanted to get a better understanding of the pro game. And not that he listened to everything we suggested, but he, just the fact that he would ask us questions and wanted to get some type of input from us. Yeah. I, for me, he earned my respect tremendously there. And, and he was, he was a good coach. Um, I mean, I, we lost the game that we should have won a championship year. We lost to Indiana because we were two, two playing in Indianapolis and the game was close. We have a timeout. So Luke calls timeout. I was, I was going to the free throw line. They call a timeout. And so I remember exactly. He said, look, okay, Rick's going to make these two free throws. We got a nice lead here. Whatever you do, after he makes the free throws, up on everybody. No three-point shots, right? We have four. I make the free throws. I think we're up four. And what happens when one of the guys comes and backs off, and I think it was Freddie, Billy, might have been Billy Keller or, 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 or Freddie Lewis. Anyway, they make the three-point shots. And now we have a one-point lead. And then one of the players who did that, they come and he tries to, and he tries to dribble through the defense, loses the ball. They score a basket. So now we're freaking down one with seconds left to go in the game. And we basically gave the freaking game away. And so instead of coming home up three to two, we're down two, three. And Louie had said all the right things, did everything right, and we just didn't execute. And that's what people don't understand. I mean, sometimes what the players do on the court isn't exactly what the coach asked them to do. And we go home, and just before the start of the game, I went in and I would do – I don't know why I did it. I go up and go get a dunk, and I pulled something up in my neck, and I went into spasms, and I couldn't start the game. And it was really kind of bad, and I finally was in there. I said, shoot that damn thing. I said, just shoot it so I can't feel it. And so Roger Brown got – who was – God rest his soul, who was a great player for the Pacers. He got off to a good start and everything, and they wind up beating us at home in that game six. So that's always will haunt me to the day I die. Yeah, that, and that was your – that was your last game with the Nets, right? Yeah, and Roy Bow, the owner of the team, because they they never had resolved all of the stuff with the Warriors going on with my contract. I had signed the contract, and my contract that I had signed that I'd signed, I said I will come back and play for the Warriors if I'm legally able to do so. But I wasn't legally able to do so, and so when my contract was up, now all of a sudden they said I had to go back and honor the Warriors contract because my contract with the Nets was up, and so. Um, 
Roy Bowe offered to pay me, you know, well, just stay here. And play. I said, look, I already gave up one year of my career. I'm not giving up another year. I'm going back to where I wanted to be in the first place. Right. And so, so I went, I went back to the Warriors and, you know, I, I anticipated that I would be there and, you know, finish my career there. And then as it turned out, that didn't happen. And I wound up going to Houston over $10,000, if you can freaking believe that. It became just a matter of principle for me. Right. I mean, I remember Franklin went on a cruise and I'm and you know, Scotty Sterling, who was with the Raiders, is the general manager. And I always remember, Rick, I can't believe you're going to blow this deal over $10,000. I looked him in the eyes and said, Scotty, I think you got it backwards. I can't freaking believe you're willing to let me go over $10,000. Right. And it was over $10,000 that I left. Yeah, which is insane. Um, so, yeah, so so that's an interesting situation. So you're going back to Golden State. Which is, I mean, so a couple of things. First of all, it's the same owner, you know, Muley, who, you know, had been the owner when you were there and left the first time. Al Adels, your old teammate, is now the head coach. And Nate Thurmond, five, six, five years later, still there as, uh, as you know, kind of a star center for them. What's it like kind of going back into that locker room, you know, a couple of familiar faces still around? I didn't have any problem with it. I just, you know, I, I, I was going to go back and I was going to try to play and play as well as I could play. Every time I put my uniform on, it wouldn't matter for me. I mean, I... I don't think the players were upset or mad with me. It wasn't like it was uh, a hostile environment to go back into. Sure. And so I was, I was happy to be back in the Bay area because I, I loved it back there. Uh, wouldn't want to live there now because of the way things have changed in the state. They've taken one of the great states and great cities of the world and freaking destroyed it almost. It's ridiculous, but that's a yeah. whole nother story. Won't get into that. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was great to be back with Nate and, you know, and Al and the other guys who were there. And, and then fortunately we, uh, we picked up some really good players, you know, and Jamal Wilkes and who was Keith Wilkes at the time and, and Phil Smith to have two rookies be an integral part of a team's success is it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. I mean, that, that has to go down as one of the best drafts in terms of immediate impact uh, getting Phil Smith and, and Jamal Wilkes or Keith Wilkes. Um, real fast, I do want to ask you though, when 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 you came back and Adels is now your coach, what's that like? It's always kind of an interesting dynamic. A guy you played with for a couple of years is now your coach. Well, he was my rookie year. He's my roommate because you know you you had a roommate back in those days. You didn't have single rooms, and so actually, I I I, I, I talked at a big deal that they did for Al one time. I said I'm going to tell you two things about Al Adels. Number one, his best coaching move ever was benching me in the finals of the 1975 Western Conference Finals in the third quarter. I said, but other than that, I said, he also, I give him credit for me becoming the player I became because I had a room with Al in my rookie year. And Al liked the hot room. I didn't. Al got to watch whatever programs he wanted to watch on television. I said, but the capper of it all was I came back in the room one day and I opened the door and it was one of the most god-awful smells I've ever smelled in my life. It was like freaking rotten eggs. And I go, oh, my God, Al, what is that? He said, I'm shaving. I said, you're what? He said, I'm shaving. Black guys back then didn't use razors because they got bumps. And they put this cream, this stuff on that they used with just the kind of a dull thing to pull off and remove the hair from their faces. Oh. It was the most vile smelling thing ever. So I said, well, OK, I'm going to have to go out and play my butt off so that I can demand a single room next year. So I give Al credit for incentivizing me to do that. <laughs> um, and also on that team now is Cassie Russell, who was, you know, kind of a contemporary of yours at Michigan when you were at Miami. Uh, what was it like having Cassie on the squad? 
Cassie was probably the greatest flat shooter I've ever seen in my life. When you shoot basketballs, you're not supposed to shoot flat. You're supposed to shoot with art. When you shoot a flat shot, you take the first third of the basket out of play, which means you have to be incredibly proficient and accurate to shoot a high percentage. And Cassie was a high percentage shooter, but he had one of the flattest shots ever. He was just, I mean, he was an amazing shooter. God only knows how well he might have done if he shot the ball up. But yeah, he could he could fill it up. There's no question about that. He was definitely he was a scorer. He was I mean he was a great great shooter. I mean uh, just and I always remember that about him. I mean the flattest great shooter I've ever seen. Yeah, that's interesting. And and then that 74-75 season. So you mentioned it. Phil Smith and and Keith Wilkes. You know later to be Jamal Wilkes come in. So you've got these two rookies. And then always kind of one of those tough things. Nate Thurman has been a teammate for a long time for you. He gets traded to Chicago for Clifford Ray and Ray comes in and you guys go on a run and you win the NBA title. Um, obviously, you know, you're, you become like one of the real leaders in the room. You're the captain of the team. Tell me a little bit about that, that kind of changing dynamic. Well, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to think that you trade away a hall of fame center and as great a player in person as Nate was to bring in somebody who was not the same caliber or quality of player, but was a super quality human being who became one of my dear friends and who I think was the most important player on our team, not me, Clifford mm. Ray. Okay. Uh, Clifford was the guy that brought everybody together. Um, everybody loves Clifford. I mean, they like to show everybody loves Raymond. We can tell everybody loves Clifford. And it's true to this day. Everybody loves Clifford. He's just an amazing guy. And we, like I say, we're dear friends. We fished together a lot, but he was the guy that kind of brought us all together. In fact, he actually called a meeting, which I, I wasn't a part of, called a meeting without me, uh, I guess, before prior to the season. And um, I didn't find out about it until after everything was over and Clifford and I got to talking. And I guess he went in the room and he said, he said, he told him, he said, okay, how many of you guys in here can go out and get 35 every night for us? And he said, nobody put their hand up. He says, well, we got somebody that can do that. You know, he's a little crazy. He said, but you have to understand, because he knew me, understand. He said, he doesn't mean anything. He just wants to win, okay? So we need to ride his coattails. We got to, don't let him get you upset if he's crazy out there. And so, and which is true. I mean, I had a great bark, but I didn't have a bite. You know, I mean, my thing is, is that I'm not going to accept somebody like going out there and playing hard, you know, and if you are, I'm going to jump your ass. But I and I see some of the things that Michael Jordan did during his thing and all. I mean, I was like a pussycat compared to him and some of these other guys. And and I got the reputation of being, oh, my teammates all hated me and all this other bullshit. Uh, I'm still close with my guys. And it was all about winning. We had a great relationship. We would go out to dinner together. We'd go to movies together. And that's one of the reasons we won, because everybody was together. Everybody pulled for one another. It was like being on a college team again. The, the, the rah-rah atmosphere, everybody pulling for one another, not caring who got the job done. You know, whether a guy played two minutes or 20 minutes, he was going to play as hard as he could play. It was it was an awesome thing. In fact, you look and see in the seventh game, of the, if you ever got a chance to watch the, the video, I'm on the bench, Clifford's on the bench. So you got two of your starting five on the bench, right, playing I mean, while the team's playing and we're losing and struggling. And things are going good. And who's up cheering and rooting for these guys more? I mean, it was us. We're pulling for these guys. And – and that's what it was about. I mean, that's what made it so much so rewarding for us. And I'm just so happy that finally, after almost freaking coming close to 50 freaking years later, 
finally, a documentary is going to be done about the greatest upset in the history of one of the major sports in the United States of America, and nothing has ever been done about this team. I feel really badly for my teammates. I got credit. I was MVP, and I got recognition for that and what have you. But the team itself has never been recognized for what we accomplished. It's one of the great accomplishments in major sports, a team that wasn't even supposed to be a playoff team, totally overlooked, not only gets to the playoffs, then we get to the finals, and they say this is the biggest mismatch in the history of NBA finals. It's going to be a sweep. Well, they got the sweep part, right? They just got the wrong team. Right. And so I'm I'm so happy that this documentary is going to come out. And when they were going to want, I was trying to get one done. I had some people ready. And then I heard that Charles Dudley, the hopper, one of our, one of our teammates was starting to do something and had somebody was starting to do some interviews. And so I, I, I didn't, I hadn't heard from him. He said, well, I, you know, I didn't know if you want to do something. I said, hop, I think it's great. You're doing it. I said, I was actually close to having some really big name people wanting to do this, but if you've got it, I want to work with you, but there's only one premise. That has to be if I'm going to do this. And he said, what's that? I said, I want the story to be about you and the team, not about me. Because what the team never got the recognition it deserved. We epitomize what team sports is all about and what we accomplished. And right. so as long as it's going to be, that's going to be the main storyline about this. I'm all for it. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the final result is. I'm hoping that Joe Lakeup and Peter Goober will be nice enough. My, my goal is to try to get them to have the premiere be at the Chase Center and mm. have the fans be able to come in and show the first showing of it at the Chase Center in San Francisco, either later this year or maybe, you know, next year, you know, sure. whatever. So anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about that because that was an amazing accomplishment, what we were able to pull off. And, uh, and again, I, I would say Clifford Ray was the hub. He's the guy that gave everybody together. I was just one of the, I was an important spoke in it, but so was everybody else. Sure. And because you don't win, one player or two players don't win championships. Even the, the things where they get the three name players, no guarantee you're going to win when that happens. And look what happened in Brooklyn. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time. You don't win just because you have three great players. You win because you have a great team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you bring up a good, you know, you've got Clifford Wright. You're going up against Elvin Hayes and Wes Unseld. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, kind of dominant front court. And you guys just, you know, took them. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, we came from behind in a lot of the games and all, but that's the way they, they nicknamed us the Cardiac Kids. And I think we came from behind in three of the four games. Um, one of them was relatively close most of the way, but it was uh, it was great. I'll, I'll remember it for the rest of my life. Um, you know, just one of my fondest memories, because that's why you play. You play to win championships. You don't play for individual honors. Yeah. And that was, you know, and, and obviously, you know, you get a lot of recognition for the scoring and you were the second leading scorer in the NBA that year. But, you know, one thing that is, you know, kind of really stands out is that you're sixth in the league in assists and you're first in steals. I mean, kind of pointing to the well-roundedness of the game. Well, I always try to have a well-rounded game. It would be pretty ludicrous for me to think, you know, like you hear a guy saying he's a, he's a lockdown defender. Trust me. There's no anytime I hear one of these former athletes on team doing broadcasting now and saying, well, he's a lockdown defender. I said, well, maybe he locked you down, but he didn't lock me down. I can tell you that I'd never have met a lockdown defender. There's no such thing. If you're a scorer, there is no such thing as a lockdown defender on a score. You can lock down a shooter because the shooter can only beat you by one way. So if you jump out and you jump the screens and stuff and take away your shooting, how the hell else is he going to beat you? I'd beat you in a myriad of ways. Right. And so, uh, that's why I say I'd never met a lockdown defender in my life. And so, uh, and I always 
wanted to have, and my father, who's a semi-pro running coach, have a well-rounded game. I was well-schooled, ball-man relationship all the time, understanding the concept of the game, seeing the floor, uh, being able to dribble righty, go righty, go left, to be able to shoot. Because if I can go right and go left and I could shoot, I own you. I mean, these, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah, you, if you don't play me just honest and give me the slightest little, I'm going to beat you left if you give me a little bit of room. If, if you're going to be right, I'm going to beat you that way. I'm going to I'm going to find a way to beat you. Right. Okay. And then I'm going to come in. I'm going to get some, I'm going to get a one or two offensive rebounds maybe. Or I'm, I'm going to get out and get on the fast break. I'm going to drive to the basket and get fouled. I mean, and if I'm shooting the ball well, you're dead. I mean, you got to hope I'm having a bad day shooting. That's all. <laughs> and who who was, obviously, there was no lockdown, but who was, you know, who did you view as, you know, kind of the tougher defenders you had to go against, you know, kind of year in and year out? Well, I played against the best defensive player every team had in the front line. Right. And that's the beauty of it. I knew there's no way I could take any night off because it's just a matter of how hard am I going to have to work that night, depending upon who was guarding me and how good they were individually, defensively. They're not going to shut me down. But, you know, some guys you got to work a little bit harder than other guys. I mean, there were a lot of good defenders, but whoever the best defender was on the other team, you know, then uh, he was guarding me. If the other team didn't have a really good defender, I'm going to have a really big night. You know, that's that's just the way it was. But there was a lot of great players when you know, when I came into the league and had to play, and I had to play against the best of them all the time. You know, the Dick Van Arsdale, you know, Dave DeBusher. I mean, you can just start naming all these guys that I played against uh, when I was when I played. But it was always the best defender, and then I always loved him. And the fact that you get a guy, a little small guy, guards you. And so with small guys guards you, he thinks he can put your hands on, grab, and hold, and everything. And so I'm smacking him back and whatever. And they, hey, hey, I said, hey, what do you, you think? You're only supposed to be able to hold me and grab me, and I'm supposed to let you do that? I said, what the hell do you think this is? <laughs> so. I mean, yeah, it was interesting. The only thing for me is that when I had to guard a bigger, stronger guy who posted up, that was the hardest thing for me because I wasn't a big, strong, powerful guy. And so I try to use my quickness and try to three-quarter or get in front of him or do something. But that's those are the guys that gave me the most trouble. But I also, you know, I, I, I understood guys' games, and I would just try to – if a guy's going to beat me, I'm going to make him beat me with what he doesn't do well. Not yeah. everybody has a. Not everybody can go right, can go left, or whatever it may be. And so you study a guy, you see what his tendencies are, and you just try to make him beat you with what he is least efficient at. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then you, uh, like a year or two later, you guys draft Robert Parrish, and you know, obviously goes on to become you know the chief and the Celtics and win a bunch of titles. And you've got you've got Parrish and Clifford Ray in the front court. At that time, you know, he's a he's a rookie out of Centenary. Uh, what was your what was your kind of initial impression of uh, Parrish when he came out? Well, I thought he was, you know, very talented individual. Obviously, you know, he could shoot the ball and score and do well um, and gave us a, another opportunity to have, you know, a, a two headed monster at the center position. You know, a veteran guy in Clifford who wasn't a shooter at all, but Robert could shoot the ball from, you know, probably, you know, decent distance. He wasn't a guy out there trying to shoot because we didn't have three point shots at, at that time. Right. Uh, so he could score inside and outside and, and was certainly a factor for us. Uh, and then lucky for him, he got, he got traded and was able to go. I mean, some of the trades, the Warriors made, that's one of them there. I mean, I thought, come on, you let Robert Parrish go. I mean, he went to, it, I mean, it's, it's a litany of people that they let go. They let me go. They let Jamal Wilkes go. They let uh, Bernard King go. They let Robert Parrish go. I mean, it's just crazy what they mm -hmm. were doing. I mean, I don't know what they were doing was just insane. They were just shooting themselves in the foot. And then when they let me go, yeah, over $10,000, they go. They went 13 years without making the playoffs. Which is like impossible to do in a sport like basketball where there's 16 teams make it. 
Yeah, it's it was yeah it was crazy, but uh, yeah, Robert was outstanding. I mean, we had a lot of nice players that were there. Sonny Parker was another guy, and and it's it's just you know some of the decisions that are made by some of these teams just amazing. You know, and then the, the, the people they draft, they get so hung up on athleticism. You know, you I take the guy who knows how to play. You take the athlete. If the athlete doesn't know how to play, I'll take the guy who knows how to play over him every time. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then, then, so as you've mentioned, you then, you leave uh, Golden State, you go to the Rockets. They have a great lineup. It's the most talented team I ever played on. And we should have been, well, we should have had a chance to win a championship. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I was willing to go there and take a subservient role on the team. And everybody said, oh, well, you know, he can't play anymore. It's, you know, he's, he's getting old. Well, shit, I, I, I was in the top 10 in assist. I was really the point guard on the team. Calvin Murphy was... Uh, you know, this guy could score all the time, but the it was geared towards the two to the two position, the th four position, and the five. That's Moses at the five, Rudy Tomjanovich at the four, and and Calvin at the two with Mike Newland behind them, who was a great player as well. Sure. And then we had Mike, Mike Dunleavy who could shoot the hell out of the ball. We had young guy Robert Reed. We had you know we had you know Major Jones. We had some. We had a really good basketball team, and. Unfortunately, uh, the talent wasn't utilized as efficiently and as well as it should have been. And we didn't do as well as I think we should have. I mean, we definitely should have been a better basketball team record wise and accomplishment wise. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the, that was an amazing year for you. You become effectively the first pure forward to pick up over 500 assists in a season. I mean, I, I know that, uh, you know, Havlicek, but he kind of played a little bit of shooting guard also. Um, so, you know, again, you know, here you are kind of late in your career and you're still putting up, you know, huge numbers. Uh, well, you know, so offensively, I didn't, I only averaged like 12 or 13 a game, but I didn't take a lot of shots. I mean, as I said, the offense was geared. So I always tell everybody, I said, look, listen, let me tell you something. I could have put up the numbers in two seasons there. One game, Calvin was sick and I played the two mm. and, <laughs> and I took 25 shots and scored 37 points. And so I said, you know, if you want me to do this, this is what I'm capable of doing. I yeah. said, I'm willing, I was willing to accept the role that you gave me. And if, if this is, that's what you want, you know, I'll, I'll do that. And unfortunately it didn't work out as well as it should have. Um, and it was very disappointing to me to the point that I could have signed the contract to stay with the Rockets the next season. And I didn't. And I went out to see if I can go someplace else where I thought we could possibly win. And I was going to be a Celtic. Um, I looked at the Lakers, the Sonics, who were one of the better teams in the West, and, and also the, Lakers, the the Celtics. And I would have been such a perfect player for the Celtics to be able to play back up to Bird. I mean, it would have been a lot of guys wind up doing that with the Celtics because of the style that they played. I would have fit in perfectly. And to show you how the NBA changed in 1980, to save money, the NBA cut the active rosters from 12 to 11, and I never played again. I didn't realize they did that. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. Now they have 18 guys on their freaking rosters. <laughs> it's, and, and so, yeah, I was going to go with the Celtics. I mean, I, I could have been – yeah, that team would have been ridiculous how good we would have been if I had played with them that season. And I, anyway, it is what it is. It wasn't meant to be. But that would have been fun playing there and playing with Bird because sometimes Bird could have played power forward. I could have played small forward. You would have had Mikhail could have played center even. I mean, and and then you had Parrish who still would have been in center. But Mikhail could have been backup center. We could have put a very interesting lineup on the court. Oh, yeah. They, they, hell, they still had Cornbread Maxwell in the mix also. 
Yeah, they did. And Cornbread could have been a great guy, you know, to come off the bench as well. I mean, it, it was it, they could have had that could have been a hell of a basketball team. It really would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I, di- I didn't know that. That's they were a hell of a team as it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then and then obviously. And so so then that's, you know, the end of your career with with, you know, the Rockets. And then, you know, it is, you know, kind of well documented. You've got, you know, five sons who all played D1 basketball. I was hoping I'd have, you know, if one of the boys was good enough to play, I said, boy, this would be great to have all five of my boys have division one college scholarships and play professional basketball is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I would bet a lot of money. It's never happened before. It's incredible. Oh, it'll ever happen again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a- absolutely amazing. Um, and I have to ask also, I think, I think in nine of your 14 seasons, you were the, whether it was ABA or NBA, you were the leading free throw shooter. Obviously you shot underhanded. Many, many players struggle with their free throw shooting. Is it, have you, like, are you ever brought in to like, you know, kind of try to coach guys? I mean, obviously Shaquille O'Neal is famous for it, but. Here's the thing that's amazing to me. They're paying these guys now multi-millions of dollars. How do they allow the player to say, no, they're not going to do something that you want them to do to make them a better player. They're the employee. They're the employee. How yeah. do they say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. You kill other. No, I'm not going to do that. I know Andres Bedrins, who shot 18%, which is beyond my comprehension. Anybody could be that bad. Don Nelson, I had heard, had told him that, and he didn't come back, but if he was coming back, that he was going to have to take lessons from me. Uh, I, I worked with one guy only in all the years I did. it. I worked with one guy, I won't mention his name, but I had him shooting over 80% and he didn't have the guts when he went back to do it. So, oh, so he was shooting it like in practice with you. I, I, he came out and I worked and trained him and he was shooting over 80%. When he left me, he was shooting consistently over 80% from the free throw line, but didn't have enough nerve to do it when he went back to his team. That's amazing to me. I just, it's just, yeah. I mean. And here's the thing, see, I in my case, I, I, you know, like I'm one of the top three guys, but I actually think I'm still was the best. I mean, if I had shot the way I shot my last six years when I changed my technique, it would have been crazy the numbers I would have put up. I shot over 92%, which would be the leading thing in my last six years. My last two years, I shot over 94%. And and, and I, I brag about this because it's the only part of the game that you could be selfish and help your team. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just you. There's no pass. It never changes. It's inexcusable for any player to not be able to shoot 80% from the free throw line because there's no one trying to stop you from doing it. It never changes. Same distance, same size ball, same size rim. I mean, there's no way in the world. How do you live with yourself if you can't make four out of every five? I mean, seriously, come on. And, And the fact that the technique itself has been proven by physicists that it is the most efficient and best way to possibly shoot a free throw. Yeah. And people won't do it. Yeah. But well, it's funny. You, you mentioned your your son who was some kind of astrophysicist major or something like that. He got his master's in nuclear engineering. There you go. Nuclear engineering. And I read somewhere that he said he shoots underhanded, not because of his old man, because he shoots underhanded in the name of physics. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. Well, he, he understands it. He's smart enough to do it. I mean, and he's 85 to 90 percent free throw shooter. He shot as high as 90. And uh, yeah. And and the thing about it is he had to make an adjustment because the change in uniforms when they got the longer shorts and stuff and all. You couldn't do it the way I did it because the shorts got in the way. And so he had to hold the ball away from his body a little bit and make an adjustment on that. But yeah, like I say, you never should be satisfied with what you're doing. I was a better free throw shooter at the end of my career. And I always remember this. Andre Drummond, when he played with the Pistons, 
in one game, he missed 22 free throws in one game. Yeah. In my entire last two full seasons, I missed 19. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So you're, 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 you're on the pickleball circuit and I, I have to ask about it because obviously it's a sport that's, you know, kind of getting a lot of attention these days. And I know in our, in our call last week, you were saying that, you know, you're involved in like, you know, various championships. Tell me a little bit about it, how you kind of got into it and, and what you're up to now. Well, before pickleball, I actually found long driving in golf. I had to find something because I missed people say you miss playing. And I say, no. And they look strangely at me. I said, no, I don't think I don't miss it because I don't think about it. Why do I want to think about the fact that I'm never going to be able to play the sport that I love so much? So I don't I just never thought about it. But I did miss the competition more than anything else. So I had to find something to compete in. So I found long driving in golf. And Mm -hmm. I was I got to be I was like a one handicap at one time. But I wound up winning like five world long driving championships in my age categories. And then they eliminated the old farts. And so I had to find something else. And my wife finally said, Oh, I guess about five, six, six years ago, you know, we should try pickleball. And so I went out to do it. And, you know, I liked it because I'd played tennis and I was a pretty good tennis player. And, and I liked it. And I, I hated the kitchen when I first did it, but I know why the kitchen is there. Cause without that, you couldn't actually have the game, but I love the game. I just got back from the world senior championships and just won two more gold medals there, almost the third one. And uh, I played singles for the first time, just as getting in training for next year, when I'm going to try to win the triple crown in my age and skill levels at the three major tournaments, which is the U S open, the USA pickleball nationals and the world seniors. And so, um, yeah, I'd absolutely love it. It's uh, it's a fun game. It's, it's exploding. I've never seen any sport take off like this as it's way beyond anybody's, predictions or expectations two years ago people said that by 2030 there'll be 30 million playing pickleball there's almost 50 million playing pickleball right now 45 over 45 million people are playing it's an incredible game it's uh it's going to continue to grow they can't build facilities fast enough to accommodate the people uh but just a really super game and my wife's a great player and i I, we don't play together because i'd have to play down in her age category plus she doesn't ever want to play in tournaments although everybody asks her to play because she's so good and uh, my my youngest son, my son Canyon, he, he's shit. If he wasn't playing playing the three x three on the pro level and doing stuff, my he would be. He's the five zero player. He's really good he, with his athleticism and his reach, and he, he could be really good. Uh, he could be a really good player. So it's a great sport. You know, really great. I'm getting ready to go to the nationals next, the USA Pickleball Nationals in uh, in Dallas next month, and hopefully hopefully find a way to win some more gold medals and championships there. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, around here, I can't tell you how many tennis courts are being converted into pickleball courts. Oh, they're tearing them down down where we are here in Colorado Springs. They they took out a bunch of the pickleball uh, tennis tennis courts in one of the parks, and they've got uh, I think they got was it fifteen courts or something, uh, fourteen courts that are there. Um, yeah, just amazing what's happening uh, all over the place. And then they're starting to build all the indoor facilities so you can play it year round. And, and then in Florida, they're starting to build them so you can get out of the heat and humidity in the summer and the, you know, the rainstorms and whatever. And it's just blowing up and blowing up. Awesome sport. Thrilled to be a part of it. You know, I do some stuff with Selkirk and Tyrol Shoe, uh, L-O-M-D-A-L-O-E-M-D.com. That's another one. And then Ghost Sleeves, and you can hopefully put this on your site, ghostsleeves.com, G-O-S-L-E-E-V-E-S. And there's a code RB24, small letter RB, code 24. Just read about them, put the code in, get a great discount. I never play pickleball without my sleeves. 
they got kinesio tape built into them. They're going crazy. The runners are going nuts over these things. Football players, you got a ton of football players starting to wear them. And huh. all athletes to protect themselves, and it's awesome. They've got knee sleeves and calves and Achilles and elbows. And I'm just excited to be part of what those guys uh, are doing. And I have a company called Pickleball Connections that's uh, doing a lot of great things. We've got almost 10,000 people joined and involved with it now with uh, Harris Williams, who's my partner. And just involved in a in a myriad of things, uh, you know, a myriad of things. Come up with a thing called remember this one: stuffed S T U F T spuds, stuffed spuds. This is if you like potatoes, this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted in my life. It's uh, it's really awesome, and everybody's excited about it. So uh, that's going to be coming out that people will, uh, will will learn about that product as well. Where do you will they be stores or do you buy them at like well, the deal? They're going to go to convenient, probably in a lot of convenience stores. A lot of restaurants will do it. They may rename whatever they're going to do with it, but uh, uh, some Whole Foods places have it, not all of the Whole Foods, but we're not going after retail. Here's the thing retail is ridiculous. You want to try to get a new product in there, you know, they have slotting fees and stuff in the supermarkets, and you got to pay such ridiculous amounts of money, it's insane. Uh, so we're, we're, we're going into uh. And, and, you know, like places like Aramark and things like that, hopefully we're going to get them in who supply food to, you know, to schools, to hospitals, to homes for the aged, for the assisted living, for all different types of places. And then a lot of the smaller stores and the convenience stores that you can purchase stuff. And it's a frozen product, but it's amazing. Amazing. Okay. I'll keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Do you, do you watch a lot of NBA basketball these days? I, I, I watch not a lot of it, no, but I do watch and keep up with it. Uh, I certainly watch the Warriors and, you know, and Phoenix, Phoenix is going to be a tough team. Obviously with, they've got three outstanding offensive players on the team led by Kevin Durant and Booker. Um, and, you know, so yeah, the, the Phoenix is one of the teams in the West to be concerned with Phoenix, the Warriors and the Clippers it depends on, you know, I don't know how much talent they have all around, but if those two guys can stay healthy, you know, George with his running mate. I mean, I, I just don't understand, you know, what the hell is happening with that team. But, uh, you know, Dallas could be a factor. We don't know about that. Certainly the defending champions, the Denver Nuggets, you know, you got to throw them into the equation. And the Lakers, who made some nice moves. And if LeBron and Davis stay healthy, but Boston's another team. And then, of course, Milwaukee, you know, picking up, you know, picking up Dane for, to play with Giannis. I mean, that, that's going to be a very interesting team as well. Yeah. See how yeah. they're going wind up doing so yeah there's a lot of good teams a lot of unanswered questions that it'll be fun to watch and see how it plays itself out this season in the nba should be should be uh, an exciting season yeah yeah i totally agree um well rick i, I have to tell you it, it's been a pleasure having you on chasing hardware it's it's been fascinating listening to you know kind of the early days in the nba your aba years obviously back to the nba and that wonderful championship in 75 with golden state and, uh, and, you know, kind of all the exploits, you know, kind of throughout the years. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, the thing is, I wasn't chasing the hardware. I mean, it's nice to get a trophy or ring and all that stuff. I was chasing victories, winning. That's what it was about to me. Um, you know, and even in pickleball, yeah, it's so social. And I said, honey, it's just going to be social. I said, honey, I don't do social really well. If I'm going out and competing in a sport, I'm out there for one reason and one reason only, to win. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Um, hey, it was a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And all the best to your listeners. Okay. Well, Rick, thank you very much. This has been great. I can't really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on. My, my pleasure. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Dreaming. Tonight.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.